You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. This is The Running Public's Training Tuesday. Training Tuesday is where we talk about training only. One topic, we dive deep, we explore it completely. It's training, it's Tuesday. Training Tuesday. Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. Uh, Bracken, I have one burning question for you today. Okay, because I'm burning for you as well. Not in that sense, but I am like all fired up on Kirk right now. Interesting. I don't... Uh, I don't know where you're going with that, but I need... Neither of us know this. Okay. Well, now I now I don't want to distract from this burn, but um, <laughs> uh, I just want to know if, if like the gods have stopped shitting on you or if your string of bad luck has continued. No, they weren't. They weren't doing that to me. There was no celestial defecation. Yes, there was. It was a lot there of it. Was, there was minor nonsense. Sometimes great heroes in mythology get tested along the way. All of them, and that's yeah. how, of course, how I see myself. <laughs> all right, all right. So you, you you saw it as tests of character, and you passed. This was no book of Job. This is more of like having to fight Hydra or Medusa or something like that. Just okay. minor stuff. Just an easy win. Got it. All right. Good. Yes, I cleaned up my toe two nights ago. There was more nail that was dying and starting to. You know, dis disengage, detach from the the nail bed a little bit, and I got the clippers out and and went to town on that. And yesterday, I got thirty three hundred feet of of snowy hill reps in with no real issues, and I feel good today. So my my watches are supposed to arrive today or tomorrow, my new ones. So I'll okay. go from zero to two overnight. Things are looking up. Amazing. You know what I did. To steal your thunder right now is I have nothing but problems with this house I moved into in uh, June of last year. Something about the address is not recognized by the U.S. Postal Service. I don't understand it. So I would say like a quarter of my packages don't come to me, and it's really frustrating. And they say they're delivered, and they go into the abyss somewhere at some wrong address, and it's a whole problem. Anyways... I made two orders to Running Warehouse, one for the Speed Goats and one for a new pair of Hoka Cliftons. So, and both said they were delivered. Neither got to my house. I had to file claims. We couldn't find out where they were. And so I was frustrated, right? I was like, oh, this address thing is driving me nuts. And I've had no problems getting shoes before from Running Warehouse, but both of these shoes, and I'm very due, like overdue for shoes. Anyways, I said, send me another pair of shoes. They did for free, which is why Running Warehouse is fantastic. They sent me a new pair of Speed Goats and a new pair of Cliftons. I figured out how to jig my address where I think everything gets to me. Then they follow up two weeks later and say, hey, we found where your packages went. They went to your old address for some reason, which was not what I ordered. They must have had a default. They got kicked back, ended up getting sent to my old address. (laughs) So go ahead and just see if they're there and we're square. So I went there and they were sitting at my old addresses in the house. The new owner saved them. So I got two pairs of Clifton's and two pairs of speed goats for the price of one, all because running warehouse is legit with their service and they don't ask me to pay for them. Best customer service right there. So suck it Bracken two for one. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Good, good job. I'm I'm happy for you. (laughs) I feel, I feel really good about myself right now. I drove home, and I had an old pair of VJ, uh, the uh, 
Their new ice shoe. What is it? My goodness. I ran in it yesterday. The Ice Hero. That shoe never made it to me. The Ice Hero. So I just was sitting here feeling, you know, like jealous of everybody. That was sitting at the old address. So I came home with three pairs of shoes that I didn't know I was going to get. <laughs> okay. Speaking of hurdles, <laughs> the Ice Hero <laughs> reminded me of that. Okay. So I was doing a little shoe doctoring this weekend, searching for a Frankenstein shoe. So I have an old pair of Scott Super Tracks. It's a little compressed and the lugs are ripping on the bottom. And I cut the bottoms off. And then I cut the bottoms off a pair of old Salmine Elements. You sent me a photo of this. I was very distracted. I was with Jess's family. I completely forgot to to respond. This isn't a guilt trip right now. I feel like it's going there, but continue. It looked crazy. So, so I'm making those shoes just because both of them are shoes that I haven't touched in two years. So they're headed for the trash anyway. I might as well have a little experiment and then inspiration strikes i have this brand new pair of ice hero sitting here but i like the zero more for snow because i just like the way the zero fits and i don't need much of a cushion shoe for snow and the ice hero has more beef to it and i thought well jared price a guy that i've worked with for over a year now he and i celebrated our one-year anniversary this year which was big for us Congratulations. he removed his carbide tips hmm he used a pair of vice grips and he rocked them side by side, side to side until the whatever adhesive they used disengaged. And then he twisted them out of the lug and the rubber parted, allowed it through, and then pretty much closes up to almost a, like a, a minuscule little hole there. Nice. He said he lost about a third of the weight of the shoe by getting all the carbide out. He bought two pairs. They had to buy one, get one half off or something. So now he's got an ice pair and a trail shoe. I said, I'm going to try that. The shoe looks like a really cool trail shoe. So there are 18 per per shoe, 18 mm-hmm. tips. And he said, I ruined a pair of vice grips doing it. I didn't break a single one. So like these are hard to get out. You got to crank. I cracked 35 of the 36 tips off. They didn't come out fully. They just broke. One full came out. I went one for 36. Can you, you like how much of the tip is still sticking out? Between, uh, I don't know, <laughs> less than a millimeter up to about a millimeter on each one. That's reasonable. Well, they're still usable on ice, but what I want to do is wear it down until the point where there's not anything in there. I wanted it as a pure rubber bottom shoe. But here's the thing I was thinking about with that shoe is the only races that you can't wear a carbon carbide tip shoe. I mean, I believe is these OCRs. Like if you hop mm-hmm. into your local trail race, I don't know. I, there's usually not regulations about that, so everybody thinks of that shoe as a pure winter ice snowshoe. But I'm like, that's a great shoe for just sloppy trails or like junky Correct. terrain, right? A fantastic shoe for that. Yeah. So either way. But I I thought it was funny. He said he broke a pair of vice grips going at that, and I had the opposite problem. I cracked 35 of 36 tips. So did you do that on the Ice Hero or Ice Hero on the Ice Hero? Okay. Yeah. Good job ruining that shoe. That's not ruined. It still works. But I'm (laughs) considering slicing each lug and getting the the carbide out. Because I was thinking it might be a good Ireland shoe. It's got the beefier toe box area, which is what I really want is toe protection. Like if you smash a toe over the course of an eight-hour race, that might be the end of your aggressive descending. So I'll keep doctoring it. Well, hold on, though. Then what did you do with the Scott, the bottom of the Scott, in which you cut off oh that's a whole nother thing the scott and the salmine element are becoming one 
You're going to just super glue them together. E6000. Epoxy, maybe, is that? I don't know what that is. I don't think it's technically an epoxy. It could be an epoxy. It's not a two-part epoxy, that's for sure. All right. Well, we'll... uh... I think epoxies harden and are stiff. This is not. Okay. I'm very familiar with epoxy. Epoxy and me are real tight because my father, who's a taxidermist, uh, epoxy is used for all sorts of application in taxidermy. So we were always mixing epoxy, and it is some of the strongest adhesive. Some of these certain epoxies that he uses are incredibly adhesive. So that's all. That makes sense. So it might be a good choice. Yeah, stinks though. Um, you said you were burning for me, or part of you is burning for me. You haven't seen me since our last recording. No. I've been seeing you a lot. Listening. I finally broke down. Lisa and I needed a new show to watch, and we went on Hulu, and we started Bachelor in Paradise Season 2. I have avoided it the same way I avoided watching The Selection when my brother was on, because I did not want to watch someone I care about go through something damaging. Bless your heart. And, And we're watching it, and we are six episodes in Kirk, and they have just started to show... Yeah, some of the uh, the flaws in the ice, some of the fractures. I can't believe you're watching that. I, your poor, your poor soul. I, there's nothing bad. I'm not. In, there's nothing. Just the ending gets just. I just get a little bit. You know. Well, I don't know the ending. I mean, I know the ending, but I like going in with as little info as possible. I know the end result, but I've never actually watched how it all unfolded. And I'm doing that right now. What is your take on the first five episodes? Like, do you feel like you're watching me or do you feel like you're watching somebody you don't know on TV? Both. It's very strange. Luckily, you look younger. Yeah. Like, you have a different style. You have a different, you've got a little bit more of your baby face, mm-hmm. but it's still clearly you, mm-hmm. which is interesting because some pe- I've known some people who go on shows and they are someone else on the show. Yeah. Like you're saying phrases you still say. You're reacting to things the way I would if I had to predict. What would Kirk say here? You you weren't putting on a show. You you seem like you're just kind of doing you. There's some snarky comments. You, you hear your voice in the background from time to time mm-hmm. saying something snarky or being a little sarcastic, but it's just like you're your real self. So it's I'm absolutely watching you, but I'm also not. Like I had to watch you make out on TV, which was really strange for me. Strange for me too. It has to be strange for everyone that mm-hmm. knows you especially you especially jess yes and so that felt like kirk's in an you know in a movie acting or something but mm-hmm. i have a couple takeaways okay first of all no it just looks so hot and uncomfortable and sweaty miserable i can't imagine trying to do formal settings wearing clothes trying to be like six inches apart with someone being vulnerable and raw with sweat just pouring out of every pore in your body people look so uncomfortable Puerto Vallarta, June, and no air conditioning. Even where we slept, there was no air conditioning. These are open, yeah. like, hut style. So it was – and then you'd have these gatherings. I mean, you can tell every, all the men are profusely sweating at all times. Constantly. And if we're dressed up, yeah. Yeah. Second thing, I've, I'm impressed so far that you're just you. Mm-hmm. For as far as I can tell. Because – so I've been on one show. That's it. And I didn't get any airtime, but I was part of the process, sat in. We, I filmed the whole show, did the production interviews where they they ask you the same thing from 50 different angles. And it was nowhere near as big of a show as yours, but I got a taste for what they do. That was Spartan Ultimate Team Challenge, right? Correct. You were the pro leading your team. Okay. And our episode didn't even air. 
Got it. But I got the sense by the end of it of how it doesn't matter how you answer these things because you've talked so many times and they can use it so far out of context. And you can say something on day six and they plug it into a conversation on day or as a reaction to something that happens on day one. And it can look however it wants. 100%. So the fact that so far I haven't seen anything that I thought, ooh, come out of your mouth means that it was really hard for them to find anything. So you've done a really good job so far. Yeah. Thank you. Keep going. Second of all. <laughs> That'd be third of all, I think. How? Third of all. How was Joe not the ultimate villain here? <laughs> he he was. I mean, is he gone yet? But it I blew th- over. They run with storylines and then they drop them. And I have no idea how they choose to. And the thing that you're not seeing, and we don't need to extend this this conversation very long. But oh, we might. I don't think people want to hear that. But is what you aren't getting is you are getting everything I say. And I, I myself everywhere I go. So I wasn't forcing it for the camera, of course. But um, what you don't get is all of my interviews that are like, I just got out of a serious relationship. I'm telling Carly, like, hey, like, we need to take things slow. You know, like, I'm, you know, out of something. So let's just pump the brakes and and let's just enjoy our, you know, like, all the things that the viewer has no ideas going on. So it looks like I just ripped the rug out from underneath her at the end. That's what you're not seeing. Like, they chose to mm-hmm. keep all of those conversations out of the equation. Like, the viewer in the dark of what's really been talked about. And mm-hmm. so she's such a big personality that she's going to react strongly to anything. She's a huge, Carly's mm-hmm. a huge personality, which she does in the end. And they knew they had that. So to make it seem as if she was truly blindsided, they needed to keep out all of the preemptive conversation, mm-hmm. you know, expressing my doubts. So that's what you're not getting. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. There have been three uses of the word blindsided already in the season by people other than Carly. Oh, really? Which is phenomenal. I wonder if she went back and watched the season and that's where she got the idea for it. Three people have used the word blindside and each time I'm like, oh, they don't know yet. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe you went, you're going back and watching that. Oh, there's it. there's so much I want to talk to you about in real time. I'm so close to FaceTiming you in the middle of these and be like, all right, you got to break down this scene because you have to remember I'm going through this fresh and live in the moment right now, whereas mm-hmm. everyone's moved on from this. I'm experiencing it experiencing it for the first time right now and it's all very raw for me um so are you doing okay i'm doing great no i i I truly have like a visceral reaction i detest this sort of thing because you can tell there are people on there acting you can tell there are crazy people on there Mm -hmm. and i mean that like not in a in a way of disrespect but that they just have decided to go nuts on this thing and they are not tethered to this planet and they either lean into it or they're not aware of it. But it's difficult for me to watch knowing that people behind the scenes said, we are going to use this person's either their truly like mental deficiency or their lust for stardom. And we're going to do whatever we want with that. That's difficult for me to watch and I don't like it. Yeah. You go through multiple personality tests. You meet with the psychologist, very extensive, all the typical psychological evaluation type tests with hundreds of questions. You do all those things. And I think what they do is they determine like a few people who are like certifiably borderline crazy, but at no harm to themselves or anybody else. And they find like five of them. Like the totally centrics who you could diagnose either way, but they're not a danger. They're not a danger and they're also attractive. So they fit this like weird mold and they Mm -hmm. handpick them because they know like they can't help but be them themselves, which is a little bit nutty. But they're also no danger. Yeah. And so there's always a few of those 
uh, it seems. So you're right. And they usually typically are a version of the crazy you see, either maybe a little enhanced because they, you know, TV can do that, but you're right. Just just some wild stuff. There's a, there's a whole lot, Kirk. This could be a three-hour conversation. I have so many questions now, but it's probably not the time or place. Let's let you get through it, and then we have a training weekend, I think. We have to confirm that we're planning, and then we can, we can catch yeah. up on it. But I haven't seen it in seven years. I haven't watched it since 2015 when it aired, six and a half mm-hmm. years. So it's fresher to you than it is to me. I'll tell you what. You look good. Thanks. You, you look fight and fit on there. You've got... You've got every little definition popping. Those are my gym bro days. Those days, the routine was lift five days a week, chest and core one day, back and biceps another day, shoulders and core another day, legs, and then an arm day. And then I was running about a long run of six to eight miles on the weekend and then like three mile bouts three or four times a week. And I was watching what I ate going into it. And I was, I was bodybuilding. I was about 10 pounds heavier than I am now. I don't know if you can tell, but I was, I was real fit yeah. in a different way. Well, and there's there's two types of muscle on that show. There's like the bulky, puffy, like a Mikey look. Yeah. But when you move on that show, everything you do looks like like a tiger coiled up ready to spring. <laughs> you just got like striation on striation. I'm looking like, oh, man, Kirk, I can see why you were America's sweetheart for a little bit here. I miss those days. Yep. Now I only lift twice a week and it's all functional and it's different. Maybe one day when this running stuff's over, I'll get back to that that physique. Anything else you want to fill people in on before we uh, before we get into today's topic? Before your loins stop burning? <laughs> oh, I don't know if there is a any amount of water that could quench my fire. Hmm. Right. Other than finishing the season off, and there's a chance that I just grow to be Team Carly, and our next episode's going to be <laughs> really cold and standoffish towards you. Yeah, yeah, that'll be a fun one though. That'll be good. I hope that's the case. We'll have a nice little headbutt session. It'll be good. Oh, there's just so much in this stuff, Kirk. It's it's wild. Uh, I've never watched a full season of anything Bachelor mm. or Bachelorette related. So this, Lisa watches it here and there. So I've watched parts, but this is my first like watch from the show all the way through. That show is trash. It's trailer trash. Nothing wrong with that, but that's what it I is. Guess, what does that make me? <laughs> let's not get into it but what we should get into is our our topic today you ready for that yes, we should i'm ready okay so i just thought after uh it's a little not timely i would say right now because we don't have any major races coming up on the ocr or the spartan scene in particular um but you know we take a lot of these obstacles out on court what are you smiling about just swallowing so wetly over here oh. the swallow is going to be edited out but i know that that with the sensitivity of my mic you're just hearing what's a wet swallow what does that mean a wet swallow i mean there's someone takes a drink in front of you you hear them swallow and then there's whatever you're hearing in your headset while i'm swallowing um. on mic and you always just get this look on your face like come on <laughs> hit the mute button no i didn't i didn't notice no wet swallow um okay. but i thought we should go through each and every obstacle out on course and dissect them one by one and just have a brief chat on the best way to approach each of the obstacles. There's a few that we know get people on a regular basis. And then there's a few, like when we were, I was going back and watching the San Luis Obispo um, North American series race. And, you know, VJ Jones talks about like, I would go over over walls and suddenly I'm in the lead by a second. Like I did everything a little faster and didn't Mm -hmm. mean to. And here I am. And there's 
if you really become a student of this sport, there are ways to cut off seconds and seconds add up when you really care, especially on the front end of the men's field, like those things matter. And so uh, going through all of the beast obstacles, I'm just going to read off the list as we go from the San Luis Obispo beast and just talk about them real quick and how to approach Mm -hmm. them, what our thoughts are, and just kind of ping them off one by one. We're not going to dissect every one for length unless it's worth it. And that's what we're doing today. I'd been avoiding this topic for a while because it just felt like this, I don't know, people can watch videos or whatever, but I forget that my first year in the sport was spent doing this. I spent a year and a half trying to find information on obstacles. And it was a, it was a young sport, so there wasn't information, but it was basically, I was trying to improve my fitness to stay with Hobie longer into races to see how he did things yeah. because that was the only way of learning because he was such a master of obstacles. And I was... I don't even think this is an arrogant statement. I think this is just a true statement. I was the best athlete in the sport for a few years. Just overall athleticism in terms of agility, hand-eye coordination, jumping. I was one of the stronger runners. I just, if you set us up to do all, like if you picked a hundred sports and tasks to do, I would have probably won 90 of them. Yep, and the 10 that I wouldn't have won would have been against specialists or they would have been pure endurance stuff. And yet still I was losing time to these other people on little obstacles here and there and to Hobie on every single obstacle. And so the first race I was with him through one obstacle. And then the next race I made it through three obstacles. And then we got to something I hadn't seen him do. And he put three seconds on me. And then his running was so strong that I couldn't run him back down. And then the next race I made it to obstacle eight and watched how he went over the cargo net for the first time and realized, well, I've been giving away eight seconds on the cargo net this whole time. Yep. And, and I dedicated myself for about a year to try to just get really good and efficient at obstacles. And then I kind of coasted on that for the last nine years. And now that I've been out of the sport for a while, I'm having to try to kind of bone up on my obstacles again. So I have come to the light and realized this is a valuable conversation to have. So let's mm-hmm. have it. It is. And, and I learned it, you know, I was a little gun shy on something, something as simple as Z wall in San Luis Obispo because I'd fallen off in Jacksonville two weeks earlier. Granted, they were very different in like difficulty based on the conditions. And I came into Z-Wall right next to Atkins, and I came out of Z-Wall three or four seconds behind him because I was tentative on it. And that was a gap that he went into spear throw having three to four seconds after I'd worked hard to pass him, for example. And like that stuff makes a big difference. Things that was top of mind for me, just seeing those, mm-hmm. that, those things happen. And you're right. I think I've been coasting as well. And so I think dissecting, uh, I don't know, might be a good refresher for us too. And I think even the veterans, I think, might just get a kick out of listening because they probably get it and maybe they have thoughts too. We'll probably get feedback from this one. But um, do you want to just start? Should we just start this thing and dive Mm -hmm. into it? After I give one more little intro, which is if you already are good at these things, which I considered I was a very good obstacler, it rears its head in your moments of weakness. Like when you're pushed to your limit running, suddenly your obstacles are bad again. Mm-hmm. And I felt it in the last ultra I did in Tahoe, where suddenly things that I never think about were taking more out of me and I wasn't able to do them the way I wanted to and still be fresh coming out. So it might be worth everyone rehashing their obstacle plan and game because when you're at your worst is when you need them the most and that's when they're going to they're gonna get you. They're going to spring in the trap right when you're not ready. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, and I would also say that I mean the the elite uh, races on the national or North American front are going to be gearing more towards beasts, 
which I believe the longer the race, the more your running does the talking. Um, I, mm-hmm. just because there's more distance between obstacles. Um, but for the age group series, I mean, they're running a sprint in Asheville in July and they have shorter races actually coming up. The world champs mm-hmm. were just announced to be a super. This stuff matters way more, uh, in the shorter races as well. Those seconds like make a difference. So, uh, still worth chatting out. That's what I'm getting. Yeah, at. And people will complain that the obstacles aren't as difficult as they maybe used to feel that there's not innovation, but what it means is now perfection matters more. hundred percent. Yeah. You don't get to spend a minute on a rig and have people fail, and now you don't have to have your running exposed because those don't happen. But what does matter, maybe now you commit yourself to being the fastest in, on, and out of every single obstacle, and now obstacles still matter. Obstacles matter as much or more than ever. Than ever. And people like to think they don't. You know, obstacles were a non-factor was, I believe, uh, a sentence used for a number of people in this last race. And I won't call out, you know, people in particular, but... I would argue the opposite. Everybody's gotten so good at them, and they aren't very difficult at times where seconds do matter, and so the obstacles do matter. Because you're not going to fail something doesn't mean it doesn't matter. They're very different things. So I don't like that take. No, it's a bad take. If if obstacles didn't matter, the three fastest people would have won. Yeah, exactly. And that didn't happen. And I will admit that obstacles don't matter if they're easy. The moment that the 3K steeplechase... The world record is the same as the 3K. Not even close. <laughs> the moment that, or, or within, let's say, it's only, let's call it a, a tenth of a second per steeple, you lose. Mm-hmm. Let's say as soon as it's within two seconds of the 3K world record, then I'll admit that obstacles don't matter. Failing and mattering are not the same. Correct. So let's just all agree on that. We, I agree. I think the people agree all right. What's the first thing you always hit? Over walls, four foot walls. Over walls. Over walls. You get us two of them usually. Yep. That's the first one on the list. Over walls, four foot. What do you got? I basically have the theory that you should have two techniques for every obstacle minimum. Yep. You're safe and you're fast. So you either run up and with two feet, you plant and put two hands on it and you jump and kind of do a mini dip up and swing your legs over and keep moving. And the second is you run up, you half jump, half hurdle, one foot hits the wall while the other foot is swinging over. Both hands are a little more on the side and they propel you over. One's a little faster, one's a little more stable. However, watching VJ in San Luis Obispo, he did the two-foot plant and did more of a launch on it, and he was the fastest one through it. VJ's feet didn't touch the walls. Not once. He just jumped right over and picked his feet up, and it's the only thing that touched the walls were his hands. Correct. Yep. Which you don't see. My top of my feet touch the walls. I choose to have the, the top touch the walls. Yeah, but yes. I generally touch the very front or not at all. Mm-hmm depending on how I'm going to do it. But two hands on the wall, some amount of jump, some amount of arm push, and that amount that you use is determined by how close you are to cramping. Well, I hope you're not very close to cramping on the four-foot walls a quarter mile into the race. Lap two of an ultra. There you go. And then if you're shorter stature, um, heavier, or um, not as strong as you would like, uh, even a four-foot wall is going to be the roll technique. Where you get up, you jump up, you get your chest on it, and you sort of roll your body over the top. Um, That's going to be into play for a lot of people on a four-foot wall. I used to teach the obstacle specialist course for Spartan, and this is one that 
was a big mental barrier for people, how to roll or flip over the wall. And the way we, I ended up working with people every single time was just get up till your waist and hands are equal. You're just sitting at the top of it like you're a gymnast sitting at the top of the bar. And then just let go. I had them take both hands off and just let their body go forward, their momentum go. And however you naturally react, that's your technique. And invariably, their strong hand grabbed backwards on the wall and their weak hand went down forward and planted against the wall to stop their fall. Yep. And then from there, you had them pause and they realized, well, I'm in a good stable position. And then you just swing your legs around the side, pivoting on your chest and it's over. And that's the way that you do it when you learn it. You just get to the top with your hips on it and then just lean and let your hands do the work. You have to trust the fact that you've been bracing yourself from falling for decades. Your body knows what to do. I agree. I don't think we need to spend too much time on that one. When we get to the taller walls, we can give a little more technique advice. How's that sound? Deal. I guess I was combining the two into that. but We'll wait till those taller ones come around. Inverted wall, that's next. Inverted wall, what do you think? I think, um, I think that with obstacles like inverted wall, um, bender, for example, some other ones, uh, the idea is, is a lot of people just get on there and start crawling right from the ground, right? They grab onto the attachments. Inverted wall is sort of like an, yeah, a wall that's leaning back towards you. You have to crawl over it. Um, the idea is to get up as high as you can and save time. So as high as you can jump and grab safely is the smart thing to do to save time. So instead of wa- walking to the base of the obstacle, hopping on it right at ground level, you can save some time by jumping up and grabbing um, you know, whatever reasonable hold there is for you there and then begin your approach there. And then the same thing, I believe when you get to the top of that thing, you swing your legs over and I like sort of like the, the roll on it where I'm back facing the wall. I kind of slide down till my foot hits the the foot foot stop and then just hop off. Um, I find that if you try to keep yourself forward on a lot of these things, it just takes a little more time to turn around and it's not worth, it's not worth it. So, um, that's my two cents on that one. Yeah. Two techniques again. Your technique is the racing technique. If you're racing and you're not cramping, you run up to it, you jump, grab both hands on it, and then lift both feet up to the highest rung underneath. There's little slats where you can put your feet on. You get your feet to the highest one, and then you push with your feet at the same time that you pull down with your arms, kind of in a muscle-up technique, and you try to quick launch yourself up and over, do that little side flip, slide down. As soon as your feet hit the bottom little guardrail, you turn and jump and dismount and run. If you're struggling, you're cramping, you do the opposite. You get your foot on that lowest rung, and then you walk your feet up, get to the top, swing a leg over, swing the other, kind of butt slide down the front, and just avoid the danger of cramping. But whenever possible, treat it like a muscle-up. You're going to see the theme throughout this, which is you want tricep push strength and front pull strength. The muscle-up movement is going to be really, really key on getting over most of these obstacles. Yes, it will. Uh, number three, monkey bars, monkey bars. All right. I'll jump in on monkey bars first. Uh, here's where I think this one needs to be approached very differently based on the conditions. And, uh, a lot of people get this one wrong for a couple of reasons. Like I see people failing monkey bars that shouldn't be failing monkey bars. Um, the one first thing that I see people do that they do wrong on these things is just how they grab them. Whether you use a bent arm technique or use a straight swinging arm technique, you need to wrap your wrist and your hand around the top of that bar. So you get a hook on the top of that bar. Some people just grab that thing straight on with their hands 
and they're big bars and that's how they slip off. You have to cup the top of the bar, again, bent position or straight arm position versus just mm. grabbing it from underneath or from straight on. I don't know if that makes sense, but people will fall off on dry monkey bars or ones that are a little slick because they're simply not, they're not hooking their arm over the top well enough. That's the mm-hmm. biggest mistake I see people make on that one is they just don't do that simple thing. And this is with the forward technique I'm talking. Um, the backward, the sideways technique also requires a hook, as we know. But anyways, that's step one, in my opinion, is whatever you do, get that hook over the bar, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah, when you think about a gymnast, when they get up on a bar or a ring to start, the first thing you see them do is they crank their hands up over and get a good grip. Yep. That's the first thing you do is get over the top. If you slip, it slips you down to neutral, Correct. not down to the ground. I think the second thing is, again, two techniques. This one, I actually believe there are three techniques to use. The first decision is, am I matching or am I swinging? Matching is the best option for most people. You move one hand, move the back hand back up to that same bar, and you match its position. One one, 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 all the way across. It's safe. It's a little slower. But if you're moving sideways on it, you can actually be pretty fast across this thing. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you're swinging. You basically are swinging if you know you can swing. If you've never thought about it before, you probably don't belong swinging on it because it takes one little slip up. But swinging is definitely good, but it's not always as fast as people like to believe it is. The very fastest way to go is the way that Atkins and VJ do it, which is where they put their hands forward facing on the bars and they pull one through. Forward, forward, they they exceed their backhand by one and they keep pulling through fast rather than actually swing, reset backwards, swing. Yeah, you can skip more, but you have to swing backwards each time and it, it loses valuable time. Atkins flies through that. I still think he's probably the fastest through the monkey bars with the forward technique. He almost, mm-hmm. you almost looks ape-like, like yes. the way they move. Like with power, there's like you just keep your momentum going forward, and and there's no swing involved at all. There's a little bit of muscle, but it is just like a bar, like an animalistic mm-hmm. going through the monkey bars. Yep. And the key with that is to do what you said. Your hand has to be up over the top of the bar because you have to be able to pull backwards against the bar in order to propel yourself quickly forwards if you're behind the bar all you can do is reach forward and grab but if you're slightly on top of the bar you pull yourself forward and that that is the key right there yep and then in slick conditions like i'm a forward i've gone sideways a number of times i still think forward is the safest bet if you can get that arm hook even in really slick conditions people disagree with that and that's okay because i think the other technique the sideways technique and what conditions is very effective for some people um However, I just think um, when it comes to slick conditions, then going at a bent arm position, giving you more options in case you slip. And by that, I mean maybe holding 90 or a little bit lower. Uh, As you go through, if the arm slips, you have a little bit of fall room to re-grip. And if you're straight arm, if the arm slips, you're on the ground. And so bent arm position in any questionable situation is going to be the safest bet. And you're going to have a backup plan if one of the arms slips because you're going to have that amount of time you're falling, so to speak, when you misgrab to re-grab because your arms aren't perfectly straight yet, which gives you – it's a cushion. So, um, And I've had that save me once in a slippery monkey bar where if I was straight armed, I would have fallen. That was Seattle a few years ago. So um, that's the other thing I want to add to that. Yeah, and I'm a sideways guy, but I know that it doesn't matter 
It's being able to stay high. And I, I think 90 is almost the wrong term. When you keep your arms at 90, it's higher. It's getting your chin up as close to the bar as possible. So you have the most locked in and back engaged version as possible. The more your back's locked in, the more your fingers are free to play around a little bit and find better grip and move. The more that you're hanging at 90, it's really just a higher version of straight arm where you don't have wiggle room as much. But the place people get into trouble with if they've made it this far is when the the bars are staggered wider apart and higher lower. When you're at yeah. a lower bar and you have a, you have to reach out and up. And if you don't have great wingspan, you're at a disadvantage obviously, but I see people with long arms who don't get this because they don't understand their momentum. When you're on a rig or a monkey bar, you have to always be preparing for the next grab with what you're doing with your body on the previous grab. And so people get to a bar, look up and realize, oh, that's really far away. Mm -hmm. Well, that ship already sailed on the last bar. You have to be coming onto that bar with extra momentum to get there rather than sit down with just dead weight and look up and realize, shoot, now I got to generate some power. So that's part of why I like sideways is it allows you to look ahead a little better, but it also allows you to generate power off the second to last bar when you have hands on each one pull yourself backwards a little bit, move forward, match, and then make a lunge up to the last one with a stable back base. But again, it doesn't matter if you're sideways or forward. It's about not losing momentum on the easy one right before the hard reach. Momentum is literally the name of the game with most of these obstacles that involve grip. Keep moving yeah. forward. Don't stall out. And that's foresight. Yeah, looking ahead. Yeah, I agree. People come up to the bars Often they stop, they look, and then they choose their technique. What I greatly prefer is that people run up, get right on in a high, tight tuck, get one move in, and then decide what the state of the bars are in. You go in in a worst case scenario because if you're already tucked up with it under your chin, you can very quickly make a pull, swing some momentum, and start going hand over hand or ape swinging through. And you've already saved time by getting up and on it. But too many times people have great technique, but they've wasted three seconds analyzing the bars and they never catch up anyway. Yep. Yeah. That whole stop and stare thing is overrated. Yeah. Get on at 90 and then make a decision on the move as you go. Yep. Let's move to the next one. Barbed wire crawl. Again, two options. You crawl or you roll. What do you think's fastest? Uh, absolutely crawling is the fastest. 100% agree with you. Crawling is absolutely the fastest. At both of the Spartan Combines we did back in the day, there was a barbed wire time trial. You went beginning to end as fast as you could, and you got two attempts at it. Or you actually got as many as you wanted. You had a couple minutes to do it, so you could take multiple attempts, but really after two attempts, you were smoked. And everyone tried every technique, and every single person settled on crawling. Speed crawling is the fastest, but it's very tiring. Yep. Rolling's the best for when it's low and it's long and you just want to move well and save some save some energy throughout it. Mm -hmm. I think everybody feels like they need to roll. Like that's the proper way to do it or the cool way. That's the assertive way to do the barbed wire crawl. Like rolling, we got to work on our roll technique. I find there's very few instances or places in any of the barbed wire crawls where rolling is truly the best choice. We did not need to roll in San Luis Obispo a few weeks back. Um, I would say at least half the field in the men's field in front of me were rolling. I crawled. It was low at points, but I crawled. And I made up five seconds on everybody who was rolling for I don't know what reason. 
It was like, oh, I caught you here, I caught you here, and I didn't feel like I expended that much to do it. I don't know why people always roll. I think it's I think it's like a misconception that they should, unless it's a strategical energy saver, crawling is the fastest. Yes. So I, yeah, I, I think that. that the notion is wrong. People have that belief that rolling's faster. Mm-hmm. It's the most efficient at the same speed. If you can roll at the same speed you can crawl, it's easier on your body. Yes. Because most people blow up their core and clench and don't breathe as well when they're crawling and they're tight and their shoulders are burning out and their core is burning out and they just don't want to put out the energy needed to crawl fast so they switch to a roll but there's a difference between rolling and speed rolling if you ever go back and watch videos of young hobie doing this it is a launch roll just rolling like a log is incredibly slow and dizzying he pushes off with his hands yeah, you push with hand and feet sideways, like a like a crab leap sideways, and yep. then tuck and roll with momentum into it. And so it's like roll, gather, launch, roll, gather, yep. launch, and it's fast. And it looks like a crawl at times. That's fast. Simply just rolling, I reserve that for beasts and ultras when you're just going pure energy conservation and you just want to get through it and then get back to running, none worse for the wear. Yeah, or I mean, once in a while, just the the shallowness of the the barbed wire itself just requires a roll. It's like your only option, but usually it just lasts like a, a wire or two, and you can get back to your crawl. Worst case, scenario. and even then, that that time trial in the barbed wire showed me that you can move just fine under low things because you face to the ground has less depth than you rolling sideways, shoulder on the ground, shoulder up. It's just less energy than getting yourself low and still using strength to move yourself underneath something. So it's almost never faster. It's just easier. And it's a good thing to remember that in the middle of a race, am I doing this because I'm tired or because I'm actually moving better right now? And if you're honest with yourself, maybe you should have spent more time crawling. And that's a really weird thing to train, but... If you're signing up for a really weird event like OCR, you might as well do that in training and actually get good at crawling because it's one of the few remaining obstacles where not a lot of people are great at it. There's a lot of time to be had there. Yeah, and I'd argue the actual fastest way is like a sideways scuttle crawl where like (laughs) your feet are whipped out to your side and you're kind of not even on your hips. You're just kind of hands and feet are touching and you're you're scuttling sideways. Uh, I don't even know if what scuttling would be defined as, but it sounds right. I think that's right. Kind of crabbing your way sideways. That's what it all ended up looking at like during the time trials. People got like a mm-hmm. a sideways angled crab fast crawl. Yep. You pop your arms up and butt up higher when it gets higher and then you you scuttle down when it gets lower, but I think we're on the same page with this thing. We are. Next, 7 foot wall and 6 foot wall. In my mind it's no different than the 4. You just hit it with more vertical speed rather than horizontal speed you have to run up and through the wall rather than run and jump into it and stop which is what most people do yep run into the wall push off with your foot jump up and grab with momentum if you have enough of it you're going to get your chest above the the top of that wall with that one motion which then means Mm -hmm. all you got to do is lean forward and whip your legs over and roll over the top of that wall it's that simple um if you can't do that then that means jump and hang on and whip your leg up even in like a dead arm position and try to wedge your way up uh, in that mm-hmm. technique, like a scissors technique, and then roll yourself over. But I don't know how much time we need to spend on that, but um, that's where my mind goes right away. 
Technique wise, it's the same as the four. You're just grabbing higher. But this is, I would say this is the number one calf cramping obstacle in long races. Some super mountainous supers, beasts and ultras, especially cold ones. Calves cramp when people do this. In fact, this cost Cody Moat a world title in Tahoe. He came out of the swim and cramped at the eight foot wall every time he tried to jump up it. And there are times where you're running uphill towards it and you can't get your great run, wall run, launch off, grab the top, and you have to just stop, jump up with two feet off the ground, and do an explosive jump and pull. This is less technique on the obstacle and more of that. Uh, do something explosive in the middle of a long run or a long workout training to get your calves ready for that emergency situation. Yep. Uh, I see a lot of obstacles on this list, so I'm going to move on unless there's anything All else. Right. Uh, next, Sli- yeah, it was slightly different. Hurdles, okay? Hurdles are basically a wall with no wall. It's just uh, you just have the top portion like a four-by-four four piece of wood. You got to get it's over. It's annoying. Can't, you can't kick off the wall, so it's it's running up to it jumping into that muscle up position it's all about leaning forward getting your chest over the top of that wall let your let you know inertia take you up there and then just whip that leg up and roll literally roll over the top of the wall but it's all about that spring and jump get your center of mass over and just lean forward now you're in a stable position whip the legs over uh, about that simple this is i do the opposite of my other walls because if you run into it and go off one foot, it's too easy for your momentum to swing your legs underneath the thing. Correct. And then best case scenario, you're stuck up there out of out of balance. Worst case is you flip yourself right underneath it and you fall back on your back. So this is one I go up two foot, two hand, plant, jump, and then swing sideways over. And sometimes they're pretty high. They're annoying. I don't like this obstacle. It's a good one. That's why. I mean, it is annoying. It's a rhythm breaker in its purest sense. The next one I would argue is the most difficult on course, the tube crawl. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the tube crawl. My two cents, I will tell you absolutely the fastest way to go through the tube crawl is only having your hands and your feet touching the ground. You are not engaged in your knees. You are bear crawling because your ass can go high. There's enough room in there, and you are going through like an animal. Like I saw Brack and Cracker do at a stadium race once from behind. He went through that thing like a – like a bear running through the woods, and it was beautiful. That's the technique I suggest through there. If you got any energy left, it's quad heavy. Your quads are mm-hmm. going to burn because a lot of weight's on them, but hands and feet only get through that thing quickly. If the tube has a big enough diameter that your butt fits, you got to do that. Yep. If not, you got to start anything that'll stick to the bottom and get you moving, forearms, shoulder blades against the side, whatever you got to do, but you can't stop. Yeah. The moment you stop and throw a pity party and feel bad for yourself, you're you're screwed. You can crawl through with your knees touching, but it's going to be three seconds slower. Maybe three for seconds sure. don't matter to you, but three seconds matters to me a heck of a lot in those races. And they always seem to be towards the end. Yeah. Not this one, but um, anything else you want to add to that? No. Armor. Armor is the Atlas stone with a chain tied to it. If you have a fantastic core and decent grip... Grab it one-handed on your side. Put the other side, your other arm straight out to the side like an airplane and just muscle that thing down. Switch halfway if you want and get back to running. Otherwise, you do the awkward, grab it two hands in front of you, let it hang down on the side, you know, press awkwardly into your crotch and just do your bow-legged waddle all the way down and back. There's no good way to do this. This is one you just have to brace pretty well and breathe and survive it. 
quickest way is to just pick it up with one hand on the side if you're strong and can stay upright with your core i agree and just get through it it's very heavy on that one hip though i will say like that hip on that side takes a big load uh you got to be feeling good for that make sure you're not like on the verge of cramping but that is the fastest way pick that thing up with one hand and just muscle through it again if you're feeling good but we're talking ideal circumstances here if you're not feeling Mm -hmm. good you might need to to waddle with that thing between your legs i did see somebody in a race pick it up just like the atlas stone and put it on their shoulder with the (laughs) with the chain dangling and i don't know if that's allowed or not i mean i'm sure it's not but uh i don't it was an elite race it was one i forget who did it uh a newbie who was in one of the mountain races last year i think just picked that thing up put it up there and said screw it uh i I think they still were on the results when it was all said and done but i guess don't i don't test it but that's somewhere in between doing it correctly and skipping the atlas stone entirely right (laughs) bizarre (laughs) all right that's i I get that dig because i did that one my first i know how my race is going depending on how i approach that one if I pick it up on one hand, I usually grab it on my right hand, go down around. I usually switch because it's so awkward and I don't have a very strong core. I get around, I quick switch it over my left hand and go back. If I'm a little bit more struggle busting, I find myself carrying it two hands in front of me, mm-hmm. waddling awkwardly and getting done thinking, well, shoot, that was slower and I'm still tired. Mm-hmm. Uh, next one, sand bay, or barbed wire crawl number two. Don't need to cover that. Following, sandbag carry. Now, Spartan likes to, It's in, in recent, it's been a single, and it's been those long tubes. Every race I've done this year has been tubes. Last year has been mostly tubes, which means there's there's actually some discussion to be had here uh, as far as what to do with the bag. I will say, in my opinion, again, this is definitely subjective, but I think one shoulder is the fastest way to go with that, not over the back. If you're talking fastest. Now, some people strategically save energy on this, knowing they're going to lose only a few seconds by doing a different technique, but it's going to save them in the long run. But getting as much of that sand together, making that sandbag about half as long as it actually is. So it's nice and compact. And then loading that up on the shoulder and going, keeping it direct, the weight as high on your shoulder as possible versus falling down your back, which is going to force a forward lean. Uh, You'll see Atkins do it. You'll see VJ Jones do it very well. Lift the sandbag up, get all the sand to the bottom, fold all the extra material down and then put like a firm ball of sand on his shoulder and go. He's very mm-hmm. good at doing that. Uh, he did not do that in slow, I don't believe. But um, that technique, I believe you can move the fastest way. I thought VJ did. Maybe he did. I don't know. Maybe he did. I forget. I watched it again last week. So I, I think I remember seeing him do that. Okay. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a believer that A, you have to practice this. You have to find out if you're a one shoulder or behind the head person. There are some people, Aaron Newell seems to be really strong and stable, just putting it across his back and going. He had a great Jacksonville the other year with that. I'm a one shoulder person. And when you're one shoulder, you really don't want it flopping front and back. Nope. It seems seductive. Like I can just get it up quick and go and it'll sit nicely there, but you're constantly futzing with it. It's annoying. You want it either directly on your shoulder or a little bit on your back of your shoulder. Yeah, I like it like sitting right over my traps Mm -hmm. on an angle off to the side. But I think it's worth taking two seconds, and this should be practice so that you're good at it. Pick it up, get all the sand you can to one spot, like you said, and then either folding or twisting the bag off. Yep. I like the steeper and longer the carry to just twist the bag off and then have a bit of a like a knapsack, like a hobo over my shoulder. Yeah. But if it's shorter, I like to fold it over like a pancake and 
and keep it on my shoulder. I didn't do it at City Field. Was that Cities or Nationals the last thing I did? That was Nationals. Nationals Park. And I regretted it the whole time. I thought, this is uncomfortable. I'm constantly futzing with this thing. I should have taken two seconds early, but now I'm in the middle of it. I'm just pot committed. I've got to hold on. So take the time right at the at the pickup, get it to how you want it, and then you either got to set it and forget it or stick to your plan. My plan is switch from right shoulder to left shoulder the moment I feel fatigue. Other people, it's set and forget it, but don't break your plan. Yep, I agree with that one. Uh, next one, Tyrolean Traverse. This right here is probably where I have the biggest disconnect from the rest of the field. So many people get ankle burn or calf burn or cramping by going hand over hand and foot over foot, and I just don't. So I put my Achilles, I put my foot right on the back of it, and I turn those babies like a bike while I'm doing my hand hand over hand. And it's fast, and I have no issues with it. Fastest way is just get on upside down and drag your leg across the top, and it's going to oh. be a miserable, melted pile of skin. That's the fastest way to do it. If you have long socks on, if you have, I think it's the fastest way to do it. For you, it probably is. And for me, it's absolutely to put my feet over feet. Yeah, you got to be good. You got to be nice and coordinated like you are to do that. And some people cramp in the hamstrings from that, from having to engage, pull their heels down into the rope. Mm-hmm. And so you want to make sure that you're not pulling too hard. You're just trying to move them more horizontally than vertically. The pulling like vertically down is what gets people's hamstring cramp going. Yeah, and I wish I could speak to going over the top of it like you'll sometimes see Killian do, uh, but mm-hmm. I've never done it. So I have, and what's your thought, but only in my first ultra, I practiced it all summer to be able to do that. I was nervous that in an ultra, I wouldn't be able to, or in that a long race, I wouldn't be able to go underneath if my hands were blown out. I don't like it. It's, you have to be really good and smooth at it to be fast going over the top. You have to be well practiced on it and it burns you up. If you don't have good technique, you're going to get chest and crotch rope burn and you've got to have clothes on for it and it's going to burn through your clothes if you do it incorrectly so i'm i'm a believer in just get your grip strength a little better and go underneath and if the rope is loose it's almost an impossible technique if it's not a tight rope right then then you're really screwed you're most likely going to tip upside down anyways i have one bit of advice for this when you get to the end i'm a believer of you get there tap the bell or hold it and put your feet down and then go if you just hit the bell and then drop and let go of the rope that thing swings up in the air and it doesn't always get you but every race there's someone the bell slams back down and hits them in the head yeah i got caught in the head once i've seen a lot of people with near misses just hold on to the bell until you're off it's it'll save you that that one time it gets you hit it changes your race for the next couple minutes there's a pro tip for you uh, eight foot wall. We're going to go over that one. Cause we've talked about walls, uh, pipe layer, pipe layer. I don't care how you get through pipe layer. Just get through it. You can touch anything but the ground. Go nuts. Yeah. I, I like getting higher in it. Start out high and then you have options. I like higher in it. It's yeah. always quicker to drop with gravity than to have to pull yourself up once you're part way through. But this is one where I hadn't done pipe layer maybe one time before surgery. And then when I came back and did Ohio last year, it was the first time I really did it. But I had watched Atkins, Johnny, VJ, anyone who was leading a race. The women's side is a little less applicable because they're so much shorter in stature that they can use techniques I don't want to use. And I flew through it. 
Mm-hmm. And I'm not necessarily a great at that kind of obstacle, but just watching the best people go through it, you get a little bit of muscle memory. So my advice for pipe player is go watch the pro coverage and do what they do because there's no fancy technique. They're not doing things you're incapable of. They just take a good path through it. And nobody's even there watching you. Like Atkins stepped on the ground before ringing the bell yeah, he did. in the last race, which is a fail technically. But it's like, I don't even know if people are paying attention on that thing. The bars are on the ground, literally, or just off. So if you touch one of them, it's like basically being on the ground. It's just like a, it is an annoying obstacle. I think it's a worthy obstacle, if I'm being honest, because it messes with the hips a bit. I mean, it's not easily failable. But anyways, the attention to detail on that obstacle from referees is non-existent. So People hate it. The pro racers seem to hate it. I, like you said, I think it's a worthy obstacle, and I just wish it were twice as long. If it were twice as long... It'd be a real obstacle. Yeah. And my final tip, I don't think it's a pro tip, but final pro tip here, hit the bell and then dismount. The moment you can reach it, tap the bell, and then just plop down to the ground and walk out of Correct. the thing. Reach from the bell from like three feet back, reach forward, then you can just walk on the ground and get out of there. Bell's been here. First time I saw that, I think Ian Hosig did it on a live stream. And people were like, oh, that guy just walked out of there. And then I, I wasn't totally paying attention. I thought, that's ballsy if he did. And then I watched back. No, he just reached up, tapped it, and then dropped to the ground and walked right out because obstacle's over. Yep. Um, next, helix. Helix is one of those things where it can actually, like, a fast helix is fast. And some people mm-hmm. are, get st- get a little sticky on it. And what I find on that with myself and others and even when we watched the live coverage of the women's race in San Luis Obispo and Renee was stuck on it, people forget that you can step on the bar that's basically on the ground. There's mm-hmm. these little holes in there, and it looks so close to the ground that you shouldn't be doing it. But if you're struggling with that reach across, you can basically walk on the ground and hold the bars because the, there's a bar resting on the ground with open sections for your feet to go. And I find that people who are quick through it uh, often use those. Um because they're there for you to use. And most people don't even think about using them. And it's just an easier reach across to reach over and down instead of over for some people. And so like in that reap in that broadcast, Renee reached over is like, can I step on this bottom one? And I was like, yeah, mm-hmm. you absolutely can step on that bottom one. You just can't touch the top. And so people forget about using those bottom ones, which I think can get you across stuff pretty quick. And then it's just about trusting your reach. And if you got a good ha- handle with your hands, then if you misstep, you should be able to save yourself. So that's one that you should just trust your body's intuition and go. Yeah. I think it's smoke and mirrors. I think if it were just the outside frame of it, there'd be no issue because they put all these random weird angled things in there and plexiglass. It just distracts you from what the actual mission is, which is just get straight across it. Mm-hmm. People end up using pieces they shouldn't use and wouldn't use if it wasn't there, but it's there, it's a worse position, and they find themselves touching it. So just worry about the top and the bottom. But this is the opposite of Z-Wall, which we'll get to. I don't think you should lead with your feet on this one. You want to reach across with your hand and then pull yourself straight across. The people who get in trouble, they get their body leaning way out. They push their leg across and then they find themselves on a slippery ledge that they can't trust. But their back hand is committed to holding them in. Lead with your arm. Pull your legs across. Kind of the opposite of Z-Wall. Yep. I agree with that. Uh, speaking of the devil, Z-Wall's up next. All Go right. for it. I think there's a specific order of operations here. Now that they cut the middle of the wall out and they have the vertical support pieces that you can use, those are your mandatory touch points. Do you think it's easier or harder with the middle cut out? 
compared to the old days. I think it's harder, and I don't know why. I think it's harder, too. But it's easier once you embrace the vertical touch points. Yep. So I think you come on. The first thing you do is you, let's say you're moving with your your left hand leading. You come up, you put your right hand on the first vertical point. You put your right foot on ahead of it, and then you pull yourself up onto the wall. Originally, you couldn't take a real step onto it because you're worried about falling off backwards, but you've got your arm wrapped around it. Now you're you're moving right onto the bar or right onto the wall, and then you just start moving across. Move your foot, move your hand right behind it, move yourself across, get to that center support beam, wrap yourself onto that to get around the corner. The blind corner is not difficult anymore because you can use the support piece in the middle. As soon as you embrace that piece, it's fine. Mm-hmm. I advocate doing the blind corner first always because A, your grip is the most fresh, and then B, you can step across that wall and get to the bell. Even if you don't leap it, you can just cut the corner rather than doing that first and then doing the blind wall when you're late, the blind turn late when you're more tired, and then you have no choice but to get all the way across the wall to the bell. Mm-hmm. I, uh, for the first thing, like the key with the Z wall, and you're talking to a guy who failed it a couple, like a month ago, but is uh, you got to keep your body close to the wall. I mean, leaning back further is just putting more tension on your grip. And so one of the mistakes people make is they just get too far away. You should be staying as flush to the wall as you can instead of leaning back at any point. So stay tight. That's going to be less force against your grip. Um, And I have a philosophy on all of these obstacles like this Olympus pipe layer. I believe uh, your way is the fastest as far as taking the blind corner first and then being able to jump around that inside corner to hit the bell. Um, I'm a firm believer that you should lead all obstacles with your non-dominant hand. So if you're right-handed, your left hand would be in front of you. And that sounds a little bizarre, but if you make a mistake, your back hand is always your brace. It's your safety net. If you reach and you miss or something slips, it's not your front hand that's going to save you. It's your back hand. And so I'm a firm believer. I'm right-handed. So I will always get on the left side of an obstacle and lead with my left hand for all of those things. Because again, your dominant hand, you want trailing you as your safety net because that's your anchor on all of these things. And so that's how I teach my athletes who have problems with things is just say, if you're doubting it, lead with your non-dominant hand. And so I take that approach on Z-Wall as well. Okay. I don't see any issue with that. Yeah. You could argue against it, but it works. I think it works for me. And others, it's safe. So. Mm-hmm. I think the 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 pro- why I think the cutout is harder is because it gives you a sense of freedom to get yourself close to the wall. But the only thing it allows you to bring closer to the wall is your midsection. And when you bring your midsection in, you naturally lean your upper body back a little bit. Yep. And that's the piece you don't want leaning back. You are much better pressing your cheek up against the wall and sticking your butt out backwards because that angles your feet down into the wall and it gets your hands gripping down into it. As soon as your hips come up tight, you start to pull away backwards. And that's what you want to avoid. Again, smoke and mirrors. It shouldn't make it tougher, but it does. Avoid that temptation to suck your hips underneath the wall. Exactly right. Uh, Next, Olympus. The most failed obstacle out there other than the spear throw. You either have to really make sure your grip's good, and then you lean back, you get on those chains, you plant your feet high up and and dead straight against the wall, and you move chain to chain and just trust your grip. Or you've got to get good at locking off at 90. Just press your body up against it, move through holds and holes the whole time, stay at 90, don't even use your feet whatsoever, and just slide along. Those are the only two routes in my mind that have any 
real place on the course. The rest is all hoping. The fastest uh, Olympus I've seen in its new age is by Glenn Race. Uh, he was just in front of me in the Vegas race last year, and he held onto the balls and chains. He got his feet as high as those chains were, and he picked those things off one by one. And if it wasn't a three to four second obstacle for him, he was really? so high. It was very dry conditions, and and he plucked them off. And I I mean if it if it was five seconds, I don't know. It was so quick. Um, but you have to trust. And it's risky because one bad grab and you're on the ground if you miss. Um, so the next option, I agree. And and I think your feet have to be almost as high or as high as the chains and balls if you're going to do that. Not even below. Yeah, you got to get them up. You have to have up. your heels planted into the wall flush. Not your toes, your heels. Correct. You have to be that high. Yeah. Not like the old Olympus. That was different. That was opposite. Um, correct. And I think the issue people get into is if they can't do one or the other, they put their knees up on it. And that's fine until it's not. Because if you're in a position where your knees are up on it, but then you get stuck on a lower one and you start to slip, there's no room for your knees to slip down without your feet touching the ground. However, if you commit to, okay, I can't get my feet, I'm getting down flush up against it, and I'm tucking my heels up behind my knees. Now, if you slip down, nothing's touching the ground. It's when you get caught in that in-between, I'm using my knees, but I'm not, and I slip a little, your foot accidentally touches and you're done. Yeah. yeah. If you're just flat belly up to it, there's no slip. You can't have an accident there. You either run out of grip or you don't. I think the other key there is momentum. Um, yes. Continue <laughs> forward progress. Moving. Like trust, like don't think about every handhold, like trust that your hand is going to go into the hole or the rock hold, however it needs to be done. Like just trust that you're going to nail it and continue forward momentum because you'll be shocked. The first time you go through Olympus and don't get stuck or pause, it's like, that wasn't that bad. That was actually pretty yeah. easy. But as soon as you get stuck, those reaches are long and they put those holes in awkward positions on a couple of the transitions on purpose. And if you don't have momentum carrying you, that reach becomes significantly more difficult. And then you're resorting to the rock holds typically in that case, which mm -hmm. uh, is just slower and a little bit more risky. So um, holes are the way to go. You'll see everybody do that. So It's not the same at all to a salmon ladder, but the same principles apply. If you watch someone on a salmon ladder and they do one and then they dead hang and they regrip and think about the next one, they end up missing. But the people who just go boom, 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 and just keep pulling up as soon as the first bar touches, they're the ones that generally make it. And if they miss, they regrip somehow. Yep. This is one of those same thing. You just, once your hands start moving, don't stop. Don't get in between two and hang and wait. You're just burning through your grip. And now you're thinking, don't think, trust your hands, go. You're dead on on that. It's not a thinking man's obstacle. And that's what people try to make it. And the longer you spend on it, the more likely you are to fail. Yep. Uh, the box. The box is next. We went over this already. But the key here is get your hands up to the pole any way possible. We just saw a genius hack in our Facebook group where someone took the rope in their hands, doubled it over and made a loop and stepped into it and used that as a stirrup to get to the top. That was Josh Chase. Very nicely done, Josh, Josh Chase. Chase. That was pretty fancy. Mm -hmm. The rest of you? Run, plant, jump, muscle up, do what you got to do. You just get your hand to the pole, and then the battle's over. Then you swing your leg up or pull up, whatever it takes. To, to draw you that picture a little bit more clearly, just to make sure you understand what Bracken just said, which you said it exactly how it is, but just to dumb it down, because some people cannot get up on that box, especially short-statured people sometimes. You take the rope that is dangling there, and you grab the bottom of it, 
and you fold it up to about the height of the top of the box and you grab it with your hand and now you have the rope is folded in half and there's a loop down there. You're holding onto the rope with both hands at this point, making sure it stays put and then you step onto the loop you created. And then with one motion, you let go of one hand that's holding that loop together and reach for that bar. That's how it works. And that seems to, it looked really genius and simple. It did. Uh, so you just got to, you know, that leap of faith when you let go of the, take one hand off that rope to reach for that bar. But I think anybody can get over the, the, the box with that technique. I was shocked at how, like, I never thought of that. Yeah. And the key is to start stepping and then a millisecond later, release your hand up. Correct. So you get that plant in a quick grab. And yep. once you grab up on that bar, now it's you're committed. This is your only attempt. Once you're on, you better get your feet up. Yep. Get a hold of that bar on the top. Uh, spear throw. Spear throw, Bracken. The spear throw is like a free throw. It's already made by the time you get to the line. All right. So you have to have practiced this. You've got to have your drills. You have to have practiced every single version of it. But once you get to that, that obstacle, just like a free throw, you don't change anything you've ever done. Don't get cute. Don't think about anything else. Follow your routine and do it. Don't delay. Don't take extra time to think. You have your routine. You stick to it. You throw and you move on immediately. That's not a technical breakdown because the technical piece has to come in training. And there's a million ways to train it, a million different techniques. But the point is, don't change anything on game day. Yes. I don't know if I even feel qualified to talk about this anymore, Bracken. <laughs> you had a so, snafu, Kirk. You talk about some of my trials I was put through. You were put through a trial and slow. I think the biggest mistake people make is they let that spear get too far away from their head when they when they throw it, like especially in their back, uh their backswing, so to speak. That spear, like keeping it closer to your head and letting instead of letting your arm really wing out. When your arm wings out and you throw it like a ball. There's a big chance that spear comes across your body and then misses to the left if you're right-handed or misses to the right if you're left-handed. But throwing it like a giant dart, keeping that spear close to your head instead of letting it fall, you know, come way out like six, eight inches from your head, um, seems to be the biggest key for people to be consistent in my, just in what I've noticed. When people bring it into their head and release it close to their head, they seem to be more consistent. Like it's one generality. And it might not be the case for everybody, but I find that's pretty consistent. This is the obstacle we spent the most time on at the specialist course, but mm -hmm. it's the one that if you break it down in its pieces, you'll be fine. Here's my belief on it. If you can throw it from your knees and make it float, you can throw a spear. So you start by practicing with both knees together, body facing forward, and without turning your body left or right, you just pick it up and you try to make it float 10 feet. And then you try to make it float 15 feet. And as soon as you can make it float in a level manner, now you stand up and with feet together, no steps, no torque, same thing. Now you make it float 20. And then from there, you take one step and stick it into the target. But it's the same motion. You don't change any of the physics from where you're kneeling on the ground to when you're standing up taking a step. If you can't throw a spear, try that progression. Do 100 throws on your knees, 100 standing up with no step, and then 100 with one step. And by that point, you're going to pretty much have it figured out. I like that. Hmm. Uh, anything else? I do think I'm going to practice with a rope situation only because I want to see if that, I, I think there is something in play there with the rope attached. I just haven't figured out what that is, uh, necessarily. Um, 
so I might, I think like practicing that real world situation with like a little fencing, uh, can, that can throw people off. I think that's the one that you really want to simulate as closely as you can. You can do your bar work for monkey bars and, and other things, like just with a pull-up bar if that's all you have. But I think like, this is the one where maybe you want to try to keep it as close to the real thing as possible. Yeah. In terms of aiming, aim small, miss small. That's right, baby. The single most repeated piece of advice I give people on the spear is that you're throwing at one piece of straw or you're throwing at one little dimple in the target. That way, if you miss by nine inches, you're still on the target. If you're thinking, oh, I usually miss right, so I'm going to aim at my upper left quadrant as you're releasing, you're kind of screwed. You pick one little one inch by one inch square in the upper left quadrant, and that's what you throw at. You don't want to be making decisions on the fly. You're looking the entire time at one minuscule target, and you're releasing towards it. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Uh, A hack I got from somebody uh, after putting that video on my Miss Spear a few weeks ago was, and I like this hack, people are having problems with these newer targets. They get stuck so hard that you pull them out with such force that they fling back at you. His simple advice was, like, who cares where the spear is, where it's tied? Like, pick the one that looks like Swiss cheese. Like, pick the spear, the target that is the most beat up, and you you can avoid that that slingshot issue. Hmm. Um, because the spears now aren't like the old hay bales, where the, if you have a beat-up hay bale, your spear could fall out, literally That's fall true, out. That's yeah. In these Swiss cheese, like, foam targets, they're still going to stick into that and not fall back. So he says, just look for the most beat-up one, and that's counterintuitive especially mm-hmm. from the old days. He's like, then you know when you yank on it. He's like, or you got to pick a spear that was missed because everybody doesn't want that bad juju of picking a missed spear. You all go up and you pick one that's stuck in the target thinking, this is a good one. Somebody else stuck this one. Okay. But but just pick one that's on the ground. Like That's nonsense. That's not true. And so I, in the future, if the targets look new, I am never picking a spear, unless I'm first to it, of course, Like which happens, or like it hasn't been chosen yet. I'm picking one that's either on the ground or I'm picking one out of a, uh, that looks like Swiss cheese. Okay. Those two things. If that's not an option, I think the next best thing, and this is from having done stadiums, which switched to these targets two years before the outdoor races did. You take the line and you snap it up and down like a battle rope twice. And that just gives you a little bit of a wiggle room in there and then you yank it out. It's, it only takes a second. You just grab onto the rope, up, down, up, down. Oh, yeah. And then pull it out. I like that. Anything else? No. No. A spear throw is decided before the race. Your technique is your technique. I agree with that. So it's hard to dissect that one. Um, uh, I'm looking at the clock bracket. I got like six minutes and we're never going to get through all this. So let's just get through. Either we save some of these or we just hit the highlights. There's let's hit the high rollers. There are some in here like bucket carry. It doesn't matter. You just put it on your shoulder. Atlas carry. Don't need to address um, the multi-rig. Let's do a quick version of this. Multi-rig is no different than monkey bar. The handholds just look different. All you want to do is keep your momentum moving forward. I still think most people should match two hands on each thing. It's just safer, but just keep moving momentum going that's it and also my other advice for these things is they have the higher boxes on the outside of these the rig the monkey bars people look at them as the women's boxes for some reason it's not the case they used to be correct they changed that rule i go to the outside box every time because it makes sure it's not a reach and none of the men in the field seem to really use them once in a while i'll see an atkins use it but like but like i go to the the women's in quote box every time because it makes that first grab much more safe 
And sometimes you can even reach and grab the second ring where you couldn't, let's say, with a low box. So, like, use the tall box. Why not? Mm -hmm. It's there for us to use. So um, I think that's just like a little hack that can maybe save your first grab or save you a second or two. Um, Next is bucket carry. We don't need to talk about that. Um, Beater. Let's talk about beater for 30 seconds. What do you got? Beater you treat like a wet monkey bar. You get your hands up high, you grab up high, you match and roll through, unless you are very, very good with your grip. But either way, what you want to avoid is the beater dropping down and stalling you out and jerking against your hands at the bottom. You have to treat it kind of like Wheel World from Savage or from OCRWC, where you're grabbing it intending to roll with it all the way through, rather than a sharp, like abrupt jerk at the bottom, especially when it's wet. You have to use that momentum rather than have it surprise you. Yep. Momentum is the name of the game there. And I think a 90 degree is very safe on that one if you're strong enough to hold it because you may need to re-grip on something. But if you get stalled on that beater, it's just uh, it, it's just not good because the next bar is a tall grab. And so you need to have momentum to get it. So then you're hanging there swinging to regain mm-hmm. momentum uh, or you're kind of screwed. So momentum. Yep. Beater's a three second o- obstacle. If Yeah. If, yeah. When they have the beaters back-to-back, it's easy. When there's a bar up in between, that's when it gets tough, and that's when it's mandatory to come through off the bottom and swing right up and grab it. That's your best chance. Do not stall out at the bottom. Yep. Uh, Next one is Bender. Uh, Just go back and listen to what we said for the inverted wall on that one. Uh, Stairway to Sparta. People struggle with Stairway to Sparta at times. Do they? Yeah. Isn't that what I'm thinking of? Yeah, Stairway to Sparta. Like, if that has rock holds on it. Yeah, yeah, you got to get two hands on the rock holds. You can't try to muscle it up with one. Um, that's simple. You got to get both hands on. Get up as high as you can and quickly go one hand up until two hands till you get to the most stable point. And then you treat it like inverted wall or beater. Get your feet up to the top. And once your feet are there, then you're set. But it's that first initial grasp. I'm rushing. I know. I'm sorry. Uh, rope climb. For me, I have never used my legs once. Uh, and it's worked for me every single time. I find the time, it t- it's about the same amount of time, a little more energy. But uh, when I futz with my feet, sometimes I can trip myself up. Not always. And so I just muscle it. But the J-hook is the way to go on that one. Yep. J-hook, modified J-hook. The key is to always reach up high and then bring your feet up high. It's funny. I watch people that spend a lot of time getting their foot wrapped just right and then they reach up six inches and they don't lift their knees up to your chest. If you're going to take the time to wrap, you need to lift your knees up to your chest and wrap as high as you can so that you can stand up off of it. The point is to stand up off the wrap, not to lead with your hands. If you're foot wrapping, your legs are doing the work. Chew up that that distance by lifting your knees up. Yep, exactly. 100%. Um, look up what a J hook is. If you're wondering, or if you had a hard time with that, that'd be a tough one to explain, but, um, it's, it's taking big grabs every time the rope is the same thing. Jump as high as you can on that first grab. So you're saving yourself room instead of just climbing right from the the ground. It's just a no brainer. I watched Lindsay do two grabs, grab, lock in, grab, lock in, hit the bell at five, five, four, five, 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 yeah, five, four. Yeah. Yeah. We can all do it if she can, uh, twister. I think it's either hand over hand or backwards if you're doing speed. And if you just purely need to be safe, you go sideways or facing dead forward, hand over hand sideways, but not swinging. 
I think the safest way is backwards because you're at 90, so you have room if you have an errant grab. Um, fastest way is to monkey swing or ape swing. Uh, get a good line of sight on the second set of twisters to know that you have an option to grab a, a handle versus it being up after the transition yeah. there. Um, that's the biggest thing is looking ahead to that second set if you're going to ape swing. Yeah, and hitting as far into the, the the twister on your first grab as possible and then getting a good transition grip on the structure. If you transition well from bar to structure back to grip, then it's a really smooth obstacle. Yep. Uh, plate drag, two options, sit on your butt and put everything into it or stay tall, which I think is faster if it's not so heavy for you to just stay on your feet and muscle through it. It is quicker because mm-hmm. the time to sit down, you can take... I just feel like it's more efficient, um, but you'll know when you get there. That's it. And most of our listeners are open, which means there's going to be divots and ruts in there by that point. If you're sitting down, you really can't brace too hard against that, so you can't put huge power into it, but you're pulling the rope straight along the ground. It's hard to get over a divot that way. If you're standing up, you get some upwards lift on it, and you're going to clear those those divots better. Um, Vertical Cargo Plus. We dissected this one. A few episodes ago yeah with the uh the high wall to jump up onto or the platform uh slip wall don't need to talk about just run and get up as high as you can on that um mm-hmm. i think the hercoist is the last one worth talking about uh the game day cbd hercules hoist as it is it's laid getting, out it's getting them be a mouthful it is again two options you muscle that thing hand over hand which is the fastest way you see atkins do it you saw Nick Mask do it and smoke hot call, but you got to have just enough body weight on you and you have to just be strong. And it is fast as heck if it's not like one of those horrifically heavy bags. You got to commit to doing it powerfully. You don't want to go slow hand over hand up. Otherwise, it's going to be slow and exhausting. Yeah. Otherwise, you put one foot on the fence and you basically fall backwards and leg press that thing to you. And the key on this is how you get up off the ground. If you get up off the ground and let the rope come up with you, you lose half of the ground that you just gained on the rope. You have to be climbing the rope back up Mm -hmm. to make sure that no slack escapes. And you want to be fast off the ground. People lose a lot of time by collapsing to the ground and just lollygagging back up to the bar. If you're going to be slow, you might as well take that energy and put it into hand over hand hoisting it. I think climbing back up the rope as you reach for your next grab to to get your leverage is key because you just get so much more return on that investment. You can make it four pulls instead of seven pulls. Then that's huge. So mm-hmm. same deal. Yeah. Um, but if you think you can, like, I think it's worth trying to muscle first because it is faster. Like go up there, see if you can just muscle it out. And if you can't then resort, I think second technique is then using the brace. Yep. Mm-hmm. Fire jump. Any tips on the fire jump bracken? Don't be a douche. Don't be a douche. You heard it here. What would be like a do? Like, how would you be a douche? What would be like an example of that? Getting in the way, uh, if a guy getting in the way, trying to get a great fire line, fire jump finish line picture while the elite women are coming through, um, going out of your way to do something fancy, kicking your feet out to the side, impeding someone's pro- progress. Saw someone pick up a log and carry it across the finish line once. Uh, race directors did not like that. Shocking. Saw people try flips and land on their back. Just. You've made it this far. Go home healthy at this point and without people talking about that dumb person they watched at the race. In Vegas last year, I saw Benny Gifford. Um, I don't know where was it. I don't remember where it was. 
but he got a lot of long hair now and he keeps it up in a bun when he races of course and as he approached the fire jump he had enough left in him to take his uh, bun out let his hair down kind of get it nice <laughs> and then jump over the fire jump and thought that was real cute that's cute that's real cute way to go benny I'm going to sum up everything we did today into one sentence. Could you? Because I got to run. So yeah, let's do it. (laughs) The very best way to get better at these is to go back and watch every live coverage there's ever been. I sit there on the treadmill and I rewind five seconds, five seconds, five seconds, over and over and over. And I watch Mm -hmm. all the people go through it. And that's how you learn how to do these. They've already done the hard work. Go watch them do it. Yep. That and then uh, always get back out on course after races. Mm Mm-hmm. Set the time aside. Don't book your flight too close. Like, Give yourself some time and go back and put in the time on the actual obstacle. Like, Do it. Nobody cares during the open waves. Just go sneak in, and volunteers are cool and understand. Go do it. It'll be helpful. There it is. Hard stop to this thing, sir? Yeah, I've got, a, I've got an episode to go watch. <laughs> oh, God. You guys just left the hotel. It was um, a little saucy for my liking. I'm sorry about that, Bracken. Sorry about that. I got to find out what happens next. We'll, we'll pick up this conversation next time. See you Friday.